This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 220 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Philip Morgan. Hola. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I just realized that the reason that I always get you guys in the order I get you in is because that's the way Skype shows them to me, and I think Skype alphabetizes you guys by first name. So It took me six months to realize that about Google Hangouts. (laughs) (laughs) Same deal. Anyway, yeah. I'll, I just, I'll be changing my name to Aaron next week. Yeah, I just start left to right all the time. Anyway, <laughs> so this week we're going to be talking about, Reuben, you said you met this person that we're going to discuss? No, we, we, had, we had a phone call. Oh, we phone, a phone call. call. He, 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 he emailed me and said he listens to the show and he's thinking about being a consultant and uh, he wanted to know if we could chat. So we, we spoke for about a half hour or so, had a half hour meeting. Thank you, Calendly, for making such uh, appointments easy to make. And we talked about, like, his initial question was, the basic question was, do I go get a full-time job or do I go out on my own and do consulting? Which is a, a very legitimate and not always obvious how to answer question. And he said, like, basically, if I remember correctly, because he's listened to the show, and of course we say everything there is to know about such things, he said he basically gets what's involved in sort of all the aspects of consulting. But the question that no one's been answering for him is, well, how much money can he expect to make and how quickly can he go up in salary? And so the conversation quickly uh, pivoted, to use a startup term, right, but quickly pivoted to how much and how soon can you expect to make a lot of money as a consultant? Well, I have the answer. You can make a lot until you don't. Because <laughs> right. my experience is, is that, yeah, some months, great. Some months, not great. You know, most months were plenty of money. But yeah, sometimes not. And a lot of that depended on me. So maybe it's the classic consultant answer, right? It depends. <laughs> hey, who told you my favorite answer? <laughs> Look, so, I, I definitely, I mean, I definitely think, you know, listening to our show, listening to other shows, our guests and everything, it's very possible. And, and I don't think bad for people to get a sense that if you do your job right, you can really do very well for yourself as a consultant, right? You're not going to make, you know, startup lottery millions or billions, but you can certainly be making more than enough to live a comfortable life and way above the average salary. But that doesn't mean that from the starting gate, you're going to get there. So I think the number you threw out and the time frame you threw out were $25,000 a month within, say, six to nine months. So Yeah, let's even call it a year to be round, but okay. like it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, but is that possible? Ruben, I forget if you said now or in the pre-show chat. Can you, where's this person starting from? So everyone in Israel does compulsory military service. And so he's currently in the Army. And you do that before you go to college, before university. And sometimes if you stick around the Army, they'll pay for a degree. So I'm guessing he doesn't have a degree. I'm guessing he's you know, around 21, 22, something like that, and was in one of these elite units where you actually do get a really amazing technical education. Like I've met people who don't have a college degree who came through these units, and they are truly brilliant and talented and have lots of experience, at least experience in the technical sense, not necessarily in the business sense. Okay, so so he has his skills are software development or programming yes. or okay. I, I believe software development. I think 
mobile, although I don't know. I don't remember offhand. Okay, so maybe some in-demand or trendy area of skill. Yes. Okay. And what does $25,000 a month get you in Israel? Like, cost of living-wise, how does it compare to other well-known parts of the world? So Israeli salaries tend to be lower than American salaries. Like, the average Israeli salary per month is now about $2,500 a month, give or take. What would that be? A you know, quick calculation. That's what, like uh, $30,000 a year? Something along those lines. Is and the cost so, of living comparable to here? I mean, that's the other question, right? Right. So I would say some things are more expensive and some things are less expensive. So like cars, gas, way more expensive. Uh, clothing, way more expensive. Uh, healthcare, schooling, way less expensive. On balance, Israelis pay much more in taxes and have much higher expenses than Americans or Europeans. It's closer to Europeans but much more than, than Americans. You, you take out much more in the U.S. And basically, you'd be making an incredibly, like $25,000 a month is the sort of salary that, like, you know, high-powered lawyers make. Did you talk to him at all about, was this like an hourly billing type thing? Like, did he basically say, oh, I've got 160 hours a month. I'm, I'm so awesome. I can definitely make 150 bucks an hour. That works uh, $25,000 a month. Is that how he's coming up with that calculation? Or... I honestly don't remember. I don't think so. I mean, I do, th- I do seem to remember mentioning that you're going to get way more with value-based pricing than you are with hourly billing. If you're uh, good at it, yeah. If you're good at it, right. I can't remember how deep we went into that conversation, but I do remember it came up at least a little bit. So to generalize a little bit, I, I recently got a question, which was, can a solo consultant, without hiring people, make $300,000 a year? American? And the answer is, yeah, definitely. But not if you're billing by the hour. Almost impossible to do if you're billing by the hour. But I think that it's reasonable to point out that you need to be a seasoned consultant, whether that's a software consultant or straight up life coach. I don't know, like whatever the consulting is, like you need to be doing value-based stuff that is extremely high value for you to get there and coding is not high value. So it's pretty good revenue, but it's not that profitable because it takes so long and there's so much risk. So can a software developer turn themselves into a software consultant and make three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year? Yeah, definitely. But it's not the kind of thing you're just going to it's really hard to imagine a twenty year old that has the even the social skills to make that happen. I think it's funny that you went to even has the social skills to make that happen because it occurs to me that if you're going to be making this kind of money as a consultant, then it really comes down to whether or not, A, you're solving an expensive enough problem, which I think you've just touched on. And the other thing is, is that you have to be able to sell it. You have to be able to convince these folks that they're willing to drop that kind of money on you and trust you to solve that problem for you in order to make that money. You know, the technical skills, you just have to be good enough to solve it or good enough to find people to solve it. So, yeah, I I think it's really interesting because what it really boils down to is how much trust you engender in the people that you're talking to. Totally agree. Having gray hair works to my my advantage. (laughs) Well, well, it does because you walk in the door and you look like somebody that's been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you can tell the sort of war stories. Right, of having done it for a while. Oh, yes, I helped a company with X, Y, and Z, and they were crashing and burning, and I did such and such. So I know that this works. But that said, I mean, that's something that makes it easier. It's not something that 
absolutely preclude somebody from being able to do it. The thing that makes it the easiest is being able to generate more than that amount of value. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's, that's pretty much a quarter million of dollars a year, right? This guy is hoping to be able to earn. That's, um, I mean, Jonathan, your kind of rule of thumb is if you can deliver 10x ROI on your fee, you're, you're doing pretty good from a value pricing perspective. I know that's like super yeah, that's ballpark ideal. number. That's ideal. If you can do three to five in practice, then people are just going to hire you over and over. Yeah. So can a software developer generate that much value each year? I think so, but it, it depends on a lot of things, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but Not we're coding. talking about $3 million per year. It's 25000 a month. So can you generate $3 million worth, or even at 3 to 5x, you know, $1.5 million worth of value in a year as a coder? I, I think on the 3 to 5x end, maybe, depending on how valuable what you've built is, but you're really shortchanging the expertise that really matters, and that is the ability to identify and solve tricky problems. Yeah, and it totally ignores the fact that customers are going to line up to start working with you nonstop. So there's the whole marketing angle where it's like, sure, maybe if there are clients out there, I'm sure there are clients out there that could potentially, that this person that we're talking about maybe could deliver that kind of value to the right company. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there exists a company out there that is in a, a bad way and this person could fix it and it would be a huge, but how do they, you know, how do they meet? How do they believe that he's the person that can do it? I think how does he find them? I mean, like you can't just assume that there's going to be a line of people waiting to work with you. If you're going to run a business, work for yourself. There's all the marketing stuff. There's all of the promotional, there's sales, there's all the paperwork, there's setting up your company, there's dealing with contracts and lawyers and payroll, even for just for yourself insurance. I mean, there's like, you can't just think like, Oh, and I'm sort of putting words in his mouth, but I'm assuming that number came from I can make 150 bucks an hour and work 40 hour weeks all year. It's just not reality. Also, I mean, and we've said this a lot of times on the show, the main skill that clients are looking for or that will cause clients to hire you again and again is not your coding ability. It's your ability to empathize with them, to understand them, to learn their business, to help them improve their business and give them demonstrable results. So if you are a good communicator and a bad coder, you'll probably do better as a consultant than a fantastic coder who's a bad communicator. All right, so I'm going to play the part of this person just for a minute. I have no idea who he actually is, but I can see somebody coming in and just being determined. This is something I really feel like I can do. You're definitely giving me a few doses of reality, but let's assume that I can overcome those things. What do I need to do in order to make that kind of money as a solo consultant? You need to create at least that much value and okay. charge appropriately for it. <laughs> yeah, but what can I do now when I don't have those clients already lined up? So that, that's a fantastic question because if you see it as a process, right? If you say, okay, maybe I can't make that money now, but if I work hard and I'm focused at it, then in another X years, and X could be two, five, 10, or 20 years, but like I will sort of be on the right trajectory to get there. Then I think that's very legitimate to ask, and even a good thing for people to ask, like, what should I be working on? And I think to some degree, right, you know, I'm going to you know, steal the other answer, right? It's, it depends, right? What do you want? Look, this, this comes straight from Philip's book and from what other people said, but, you know, what is it that you've enjoyed doing that you're good at that people keep asking you to do? 
And if you can find something that hits on all those, then you start working on problems and you try helping people with problems in that area. And over time, you will get a reputation and you'll understand these problems and you'll be able to do it. And people will eventually pay you good money to do it. They will probably, right? There's no guarantee, but they will probably pay you good money to do that. All right. So you find a niche and then you go out and solve problems in that niche. Hopefully it's something that I enjoy that I can give a lot of value in. But there's got to be more to it than that, right? In order to get to that 25000 it's, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. But at the same time, it's, okay, well, what else do I need to do? How do I find these people? Yeah, I mean, in the pre-show chatter, I was asking if, if this a guy who asked this question ever used the word relationships at all at any point in the conversation because the cruel irony of working for yourself is that you don't really work for yourself. You, you know, find people who have a problem you can solve and build a relationship based on trust that culminates in them paying you to solve the problem. Not even culminates. That's actually just a part of the relationship. So I agree it's a process, and I think you need a systematic way. So, I mean, Chuck touched on positioning. You also need a systematic way to find clients. So you have to have some kind of way to generate leads. You can't just like walk up to high-tech companies and say, I am a great programmer. Don't you want to hire me? I mean, if that works for you, great, but I'm skeptical. Well, I don't know anybody that's worked for. No, (laughs) that's how you get an hourly position or a contractor position or staff augmentation type position. I don't think we know what kind of coding this person is, but you could make like a hundred grand a year in the U.S. doing iOS development tomorrow. You know, it's a really good living. It's solid, but it's not 25000 a month. You're not working for yourself. The other thing I would add is that I've actually gone to companies and said, I'm really good at Ruby on Rails. Do you want to hire me? But what inevitably happened in the companies that I got hired for is that they would somehow have all of the applications they got up on some kind of public forum and somebody would have listened to one of my shows. And so I had an unfair advantage just in the sense that there were at least, you know, decent odds that some of the companies I was going to would have heard of me. But if you're going out there on your own with nobody ever having heard of you or knowing what you can do, it's a whole lot harder sell to just walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you want to hire me? Instead, what what you usually wind up doing is talking to them. And then when they touch on a problem, you know, you can handle then you start speaking their language to them about the problem and start feeding them part of the solution. And then when it comes back around, they hire you because part of that solution is really tough and they don't really want or are capable of hiring somebody to take care of that in-house. And so they want to just bring you in because you can solve it more quickly and more efficiently than anybody else. Yeah. So let me touch on, I think the key thing that you mentioned there is that they heard of you. And what is that? That gives you a little bit of a trust edge. Yep. So I guess another way to tackle this is like, okay, if you were going to try and accelerate this process, the real question is how do I get people to trust me faster? Which I I know Philip can do like a 15 minute soliloquy on (laughs) and, and (laughs) and should, but a very quick way to do that is referrals. Referrals are the gold standard of trust. So if you know what you do or who your ideal buyer is, you have some kind of value proposition, even if it's like I'm a God coder and you've got a happy customer, then the probably the fastest thing you can do is go to that person who trusts you and say, hey, could you reach out to some of your colleagues who are in similar positions in similar companies and see if they need a God coder and introduce us? That's probably the very, very fastest way you could do it. It might not pan out, but 
it probably won't pan out. The odds are sort of low for someone just starting out to be able to make that work. But that's the fastest way I can think of to actually get clients is have your existing customers network for you. I was just going to say, if this person's in a military unit that does this, I'm assuming that the way that the people who are coming out of there and getting top-notch jobs are getting connected is through their commanding officer or at least somebody who's familiar with and works with the unit on a regular basis. And so instead of trying to parlay that into a full-time job, you may be able to work that out so that you get referred for a client position. That's exactly right. That a, a lot of these elite units have like alumni associations. And because they have so many people in the high-tech world in such high positions, it's very good networking. Like, in fact, it's, you, you often tell you know, kids, and I mean, <laughs> I often tell my kids, when you go in the army, <laughs> you want to go into one of these intelligence units in high-tech because then it's going to be super easy for you to find an amazing job afterwards. And they definitely recommend, each, you know, refer each other. Whether they refer each other to consulting jobs or just to full-time jobs, I don't know. I wasn't in such a unit. But yeah, there's a lot of references, you know, going on there, referrals going on there. Yeah, the referrals are, I mean, there's a sort of paradoxical thing going on with trust. When it comes to lead generation, the things that rapidly increase trust unfortunately, are the things that are the hardest to do when you're starting out. They're things that involve having some sort of invention or intellectual property that is not necessarily secret, but proprietary, meaning it's associated with your name. It's kind of branded with your name. The other lead generation technique that really gets people's attention is to have this kind of contrarian viewpoint, which, you know, that's an Alan Weiss original for you. But those two things of like, an invention that you've created or a unique intellectual property and a contrary viewpoint take time to develop. But paradoxically, they are the thing that makes the biggest difference. I think if you, if you possess those things when it comes to lead generation, it just you're playing the game at a, at a much easier difficulty setting. So I know that's probably not what, uh, what our man at home wanted to hear. But it also, if, if you make that a goal to work towards those things, they can be developed in six or 12 months and they can really change the game when it comes to commanding premium fees. I have a case in point for that. Eric Davis, who was on the show, was pretty new to Ruby on Rails. And I think before that, he'd only been doing PHP for a year or something. I don't remember all the details. But he hadn't been a developer very long and he certainly hadn't been doing Rails very long when he ran across Redmine. And he built a couple of open source plugins for Redmine and before long, he became sort of the premium place for people to go and get custom Redmine plugins built for their businesses. A lot of them were things that only one or two companies were building, but he built that out by having that stuff out there. And then it was, oh, well, we trust you to build our custom stuff because we're already using your open source stuff to solve our other problems. So we know you can do it. We have trust that you'll, you know, that you're capable and that you're competent and we can bring you in to solve the problem. But that was his unfair advantage, and I believe that over the first six to nine months of him doing Redmine development, it was mostly writing open source stuff that eventually built into the market that he could hit full speed yeah. ahead. That's about right. I interviewed him for my podcast, and he uh, has this great story where he talks about clients fighting over some open time in a slot. He had like a bidding war going on or something. Um, <laughs> So that, I mean, that, that can really, that definitely accelerates this process that we're talking about. And it is a process. 
Yeah. I mean, you can do it with a blog or you can do it with a podcast. I, I talked about my experience there. And it got to the point where if I had a slowdown, I would just mention on the JavaScript or Ruby podcast that I had some open time and it'd get filled in a week. You know, you bring up a good point. I, I, I said, you know, intellectual property and contrary in viewpoint, but owning a media asset, which really is what a blog is, can also help a lot, especially when it's like a trusted, well-known thing, which hint, hint, in the world of podcasting is a lot easier to do than you might think if you possess a certain amount of self-discipline and follow through. Yeah. The other thing I'll add to that is just that I had a few clients that were lukewarm on me and then went and listened to the podcast and then came back and said, okay, we'll hire you, no problem. And so it, it serves the other way too, because it adds credibility if they hadn't heard of you before. Right. And it's, it's a relatively easy thing to set up. One thing that I would caution though, if you're going to go do a podcast, is that it's easy to do a podcast about the technical skills that you possess that allow you to complete the job. But in that case, you're reaching your colleagues and competitors and not your customers. And so if you're going to put together a podcast, you need to go out and do the extra work so that you can do a podcast about who you're trying to serve and about their problems so that you can prove that you understand those problems and so that they'll want to listen to you because you're giving information that's interesting to them and not necessarily to the people who do what you do, if that makes sense. I think the caffeine is kicking in for me finally. So, <laughs> I mean, another thing that slows down this process which if you're aware of it going in, you can work around it to a certain extent. It's exactly what Chuck said, your customers' problems. I bet you money that most people listening to this could improve on their understanding of what their customers' problems are or their clients' problems. Always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you can make that a focus early on, I think your journey from wherever you are to $20,000 a month in revenue will be accelerated. Just one thing to add to that, I've been going to podcast conferences and other conferences for quite a while, and I'm not even looking for a business opportunity with these people. But at the same time, you know, I come away from there and I have a pretty good understanding of what people are fighting with now in order to get their shows out there better. And so if you've decided, okay, I want to go and serve dairy farmers, I'm just picking something out of the air. You know, if there's a big convention for dairy farmers, go. Go sit down, see what they're talking about in the sessions. Go buy a booth on the show floor and sit down and talk to people and say, look, I'm a technology guy and I want to solve your problems. You know, where are you struggling? Where are you having issues? And if you have enough of those conversations, you can short circuit a lot of that research and you can come away saying, you know what? I came out of there with about 10 ideas that I think are pretty solid. Five of them sound like stuff that I just don't want to do. You know, the other five, I have two favorites, and both of them look like they're pretty common and pretty lucrative problems, and then go after those. But I think one or two sessions or events with the people you want to serve can drastically make that up for you. I had a conversation yesterday with one of my co-hosts on the JavaScript Jabber podcast, because he's considering his employment options going forward, and he's thinking about freelancing, and he said that he wanted to work with startups, and I said... The only problem with startups is that there's no really convenient place out there to find them. But, you know, I did mention a few because there's a startup incubator out here that has a big startup community around it. There are also a few investment firms that tend to do startup related meetups. And so I said, you can go to those and meet people and listen to them and figure out what they're about. And again, you can start figuring out how to get in there and what they're looking for in technical co-founders and 
contractors who can come in and build their MVP. But yeah, if you can find the community and you can get involved with it, you can uh, have the conversations to get you well down the road of knowing what the next step is. I want to add that, and again, this is like kind of ribbed from some of the stuff Alan Wife says, but I think it's super relevant to think about the emotional fortitude, I guess, that it takes to command a premium rate. Uh, a lot of us have a lot of self-doubt about our own value. Maybe this guy is one of those exceptions. Maybe he's uh, a light-duty sociopath and doesn't have to struggle with stuff <laughs> like this. I don't know. <laughs> no offense, guy, if you're listening. But a lot of people would be, they would feel a lot of guilt, honestly, about making 10 times as much as their neighbors do. Not everybody, but a lot of people would, they would have to do some work, some kind of inner work on their mindset just to be able to look a client in the face I took 25,000, multiplied it by 12, and divided it by three, because I don't think you can work on 30 projects in a year. I think it's more like three or four projects in a year. And that works out to $100,000 per project. So can you look a client in the face and say, this is going to cost you $100,000, and it's the best way you could possibly spend that money? A lot of people would fail that. What seems like a very simple test, but it, it's not easy. Yeah, I can tell you I've had to work on that. I think part of what gets me there, though, is the benchmark that Jonathan put out there. And that is, is that if I feel like they're giving me $100,000 so that they can get a million dollars from somewhere else, I don't feel bad about it at all. Yep. Right. Right. But it takes a long time to get to that yes, point. Yes, it does. Right. Like, I mean, how many years would I sort of squirm when a client would ask me how much I charge? And I'd squirm and I'd sort of say it out of the side of my mouth and, well, what do you say? And I'll, I, until I was confident enough to really say, yeah, I am going to charge this and that's okay. And, and I mean, look, so I just got an uh, email, I guess it was last week, two weeks ago from the training company I'd done a lot of work with for several years. And they said, would you be interested in doing a Git course for us? I said, well, my, my rates have gone up, but sure, if I have time on my schedule. So we had a conversation with the client and everything was great. And then they said, okay, so what do you charge now? And I told them, and they were like, are you kidding me? We don't pay that. And literally they said, why don't you make the price more attractive and then we can do this. <laughs> attractive and, to who? Right. And I was like, I, my schedule's full and this is the minimum that people are paying now. No. And I haven't heard back from them. And years ago, there's no way I would have had the guts to say that. I would have been like, oh my God, there's work. Of course, I'll take it for whatever they'll pay me. Yeah, that's a tough cycle to get out of. Yeah, it's not just confidence. It's also cash flow. So if you don't have, there's a depressive effect on your pricing when you're not getting a lot of leads because you get this feeling like this could be the last lead. You know, I, I'm lucky I have this one lead. This could be the last lead I see for six months. So I really want to get the job. So you just talk yourself internally into this lower and lower and lower price. You know, that's not good. And you know, I think the, really the only way to solve that is either have a ton of money in the bank so that you've got a long runway or to be just have lots and lots of leads coming in so that you're just totally comfortable saying, you know, no, that's just not going to work for me. But the a line I learned from a previous employer that I, I love is when somebody asks for a discount, I say, I, I just can't make a business case for that. You know? <laughs> and, and I kind of put it on them like, why would I do that? And they're like, uh. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I love that line. So if you're looking at getting into Git training, Reuven has a referral for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, right. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the, that pricing model there, which anyway. 
look, I feel to some degree for people who are sort of starting out and they're like, oh, they're inspired by success stories and they want to do well. And there's no reason why they can't do well. But like, what's the line? You know, overnight success has spent many years getting there. The 10 year overnight success. Right. Right. I just feel like what I don't want to come off as sounding like is you have to pay your dues. That's not what I'm at least thinking at all. It's more a matter of just sort of there's a natural cycle of when you're learning to do anything, right? When I'm putting together a new course, it takes time for me to figure out how to teach it and what the terms are and how to work in it. And it takes several times of doing it until it feels smooth. And it's going to be the same thing with working with clients. You might know the technology, but until you can talk about it and understand it and use it to further businesses, it's going to just take a while. And that's just sort of the nature of life. Right. And just to pile on, it's that, yeah, the only limiting factor to having a lucrative and successful career in consulting or freelancing is you. It's, it's what you're capable of and what you can sell. And what we're saying isn't that you have to pay your dues. I like the way you put that. What we're saying is, is that it's much easier to sell when you have a whole lot more experience and you have stuff that you can actually show people. And if you're, if you're new to it, you don't have a lot of that. And when you've done it for a while, you do. And so we're not saying it's impossible. What we're saying is, is that it gets easier over time because you have this yeah. other social proof. You have this other experience that shines through in the way you communicate. And so it becomes much, much easier to both sell and solve the problems. There's the other issue of, and I've done this before, where I got a project that was pretty big for where I was in my business. And here's how it worked for me. I bet, I bet other people have done this too. You look at that project and let's say it's a three-month project and you're going to make 60 grand. You divide that by three and you're like, oh my God, I make $20,000 a month. <laughs> no, you don't. You have a three-month project that pays that amount. And that's exactly long enough to take your eye off the ball, which is not getting $20,000 a month. It's not delivering the project. It's marketing yourself in a way that you can sustain that. <laughs> I know I'm a marketer here, so I'm a little bit biased when I say that. Yes, of course, the delivery matters, but that's just long enough to take your eye off the ball and set yourself up for a nice three to six month dry period. And yeah. that's <laughs> so <yeah>. true. <laughs> I mean, that's right. another part of yeah, having true. a business that makes whatever. I mean, even if it's $50 a month, if you can do that consistently day in, day out, come rain, come sunshine, that's actually a skill that will set you up for this $20,000 a year business that you want a lot better than some other skills will. Another thing that's related to that is developing like a mix of services where it's not all, Jonathan talks about hitting a home run, right? You don't have to hit a home run every time at bat if you have the right mix of services. And so you can have some services that kind of sustain cash flow in between the bigger projects. I, I don't see a lot of people doing that on day one of their business. Uh, I mean, it would be ideal if they could, but some of that just kind of comes from that feel you develop for, for your clients and on their needs. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember uh, getting, I did a big project a number of years ago with SAP, SAP. And I came home, I said to my wife, I'm so excited. This is like the biggest project ever. And I'm going to be working with them for years. And this is just the best. And she said, no, you won't. 
<laughs> she said, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be negative here, but no project lasts forever and something always happens. And it's, that's just sort of the nature of your business. And you should realize this. <laughs> and she was 100% right because it was a fantastic project. I worked with them for like eight months. And at about the eight-month mark, the vice president pulled me aside and said, that's it. That's the end. And it wasn't anything bad I had done or anyone's fault. It just happened. And I hadn't been really looking around for other things because I was so excited by this project. And so, yeah, there was a dry spell. Absolutely. Yeah, and the mindset you're in the day or the day after you get that phone call or whatever (laughs) is not a very productive mindset for commanding a premium rate on the next project. (laughs) It's the opposite of that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've got a story. If we're telling stories, I, I just, I, I'm just like a story of like a period of time when I was firing on all cylinders without really knowing what I was doing. It was mostly luck and sort of cockily fired a client who was paying me five figures a month without even thinking that much about it. Cause, oh, I'm sure I'll get it. You know, I've been getting leads like this, no problem. And, you know, and didn't get any for like a year. So it meant that I had to actually work more. <laughs> I don't like, um, so, you know, it's, it, and around the same time I was talking to a, another consultant who had just gone in house, if you will, as the president of what was going to be a reasonably large services business. And he was, we were talking, you know, sort of comparing notes of our previous year or whatever. And he did something like, it was like seven, $750 or $800,000 as a solo consultant the year before. And I was like, why would you, and I knew what he was going to be making at the, you know, he was going to be making significantly less at the new company. And I was like, why would you ever not do that? <laughs> That's like, that sounds so great. And he was like, yeah, you know, but it's, it, it was a good year, but they're not all good years. And so like, here's a guy, you know, it's in swing distance of a million dollars a year by himself, no employees, nothing. And he's just like, he was afraid of the feast famine cycle. If you can believe that. So, you know, what's the story I'm telling, I guess, is that if you don't have a systematic way to attract leads, like Philip was talking about, then you end up in this feast famine cycle and that creates a really bad effect on your confidence, which decreases your pricing and it puts you in this, this sort of downward spiral or this, maybe not a downward spiral, but it's like you're sort of trapped in this hamster wheel type situation. And it just takes time to develop things that will prevent that from happening. So this person that we're sort of talking to here could very well have a bunch of $25,000 months right out of the gate, you know, but to, when I see that, it reminds me of like, you know, going to Vegas and being in hitting the first time for like five grand. You're like, Oh, this is so easy. I'm just going to keep doing this. <laughs> there's, there's just more to it than that. All right. Anything else to add? And just to sum up, it seems like most of this just comes down to people who have been doing this a while, have an unfair advantage in both experience and social proof. And so it's easier to make more money the longer you are a consultant. But there's no reason why you can't. You just have to go out there and create your own unfair advantage. I really like the point that Philip made where he basically said that you can go out and create your own unfair advantage with uh, intellectual property or something similar. But again, that's a lot of work. 
and it takes some time to get it all together and then get people out there talking about it. So, yeah. And the best versions of that are not developed in some laboratory. They're developed like by working with clients, which kind of creates a chicken and an egg problem. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. Ruben, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So I just got back a few days ago from a family vacation. We spent uh, two weeks in Portugal. So that already gives me my first two picks. One is family vacations. I know this is going to sound crazy, but this is one of the first times in memory that I didn't work for a period of two weeks. Like I was catching up on a tiny bit of email with clients, but really it was minuscule. And my wife even remarked that while we were there, I was really not working. And this was unusual for vacation. So I really, as someone who has fallen to the trap of, well, I'm self-employed, I better keep track of things, I better constantly be doing things, try to set yourself up so that you can remove yourself from work and that your work won't fall apart as a result. It's good for you, it's good for your family, good for your relationships, and, and there's a lot of fun out there in the world that doesn't have to do with work. Shocked as my family might be to hear me say that. Number two is, we had a fantastic time in Portugal. Boy, oh boy, if you can go there, great fun. And the third pick, which actually might have to do with work, is while we were there, we rented a car, or rented two cars, actually. And I was having the most frustrating time checking with this company and this company and this company. I said, you know, someone must have done aggregation of car rentals. Like, it can't be that no one has done this. And indeed, I found two different companies. One of them is carrentals.com. The other is rentalcars.com. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I will tell you that rentalcars.com is great, and carrentals.com is not. They, they were great, not only in that the website was actually easy to use and I, I enjoyed using it, but because they work with a lot of different companies, when a company could not provide me with a car I wanted, they called me up on the phone and they said, we're working to get you another company in the same class at the same price, and they came through, which I thought was pretty great and amazing. Not that I really rent cars very often at all, but you can be sure that I'm going to use their service again in the future because it was just so convenient. So those are, those are my picks for this week. All right, Philip, what are your picks? I would also pick taking time off. I've dropped down to three-day work weeks in August, maybe able to continue that a little longer, and it's been great. I have changed how I label my webinars. I used to call them micronars, which I still love the word, but now I'm calling them dev shop marketing briefings. And I wanted to point people to a page where I publish the recordings of those after they're done. Uh, I don't, unlike, very much unlike myself, I do not have a vanity domain name set up for this. So just look in the show notes and there'll be a link to Dev Shop Marketing Briefings or Google it and the entire front page will be links to the site where I put these recordings. These are 30 minute, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's an, a guest expert I bring in. Like the next one, I'm bringing in Jake Jorgovan to talk about outbound marketing because he's an expert on that, I'm not, and I think it'll be very valuable to people. Uh, so he'll talk for 30 minutes about it, that, and then there'll be 60 minutes of live Q&A. So I'm trying to do one of these a month, and that may be of interest to folks, so I wanted to mention that. My second pick is a book called The Secret of Selling Anything by Harry Brown. Old book, some outdated examples, but really great concepts if you are interested in sort of learning about how to think about value and how that's the basis of any transaction. I enjoy kind of looking outside the world of freelancing for stuff that's relevant to people in the world of freelancing. And I think that book's a great example of that. It's, you know, very simple, very easy to read, 
first chapter is a little boring, a little bit of a slog, but after that it gets a lot better. So uh, that's The Secret of Selling Anything by Harry Brown. And that's it for my picks this week. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? First, I'll second the plus one on the Harry Brown book. I started reading it the other day on Philip's recommendation, and it's arresting. I think it's really good. I'm, I'm only a little little ways in, but I can definitely plus one that pick. I will also pick TrustVelocity.com. It's a site Philip put up to sort of rate a bunch of different approaches that you can take to building trust, which follows on from the episode that we just recorded. There are a lot of different ways to build trust. Some are harder than others, some are quicker than others, and some have a better result than others. And you can sort of go down the list and it helps you, you know, first of all, get an idea of what all the different things are you can do to build trust and sort of pick and choose the ones that are best for your personality or where your business is at. It's a great resource. So I figured I'd, I'd plug Philip there. And the other, I've got a book for my last pick, which is Million Dollar Maverick by Alan Weiss, who came up today. It's almost a memoir-style book compared to his other stuff. And it might be that I like it so much because I'm so familiar with so many of his other books. Most of his other books, at least the ones I've read, are very tactical and specific, which is great because it's, it's very much like do this, say this, ask this. Uh, which is helpful when you're getting started out. And after a while, though, you kind of hit the wall if you don't understand what goes into some of that stuff. And in this book, I feel like he drills into the psychology underneath some of the things that he previously just told you to do. And for me, there have been, I probably had a half a dozen, like, wow, light bulb moments. So if you're familiar with Alan's work, I would say definitely it's worth reading Million Dollar Maverick. If you're not familiar with his work, you should perhaps read value-based fees first or million-dollar consulting. Those are classics, and then move on to this million-dollar Maverick book. I really liked it. All right, I'm going to go ahead and make a couple of picks here. I also want a plus one on the taking time off. I had to do it a couple of times this summer where I had minimal or no internet access. One week in June, I had none. The other week, I had it on my phone, but I didn't really have time to check in anyway. And amazingly, nothing fell apart while I was gone. So when I came back, there were a couple things I had to deal with, but, you know, nothing that was permanently ruined or, you know, relationships that were lost or anything like that. So, you know, some of that is due to Mandy holding down the fort for me. And I think a lot of that is just due to having processes together. And, you know, generally the server stayed up and, you know, I have great co-hosts that recorded shows while I was out. So it's just awesome. The other thing that I'm going to pick is schedule once. So I was using Calendly to schedule podcast guests. And the issue that I had was that Calendly only allows you to connect one calendar to each Calendly account. And that's a problem if you have five calendars for five podcasts. Schedule once allows you to set up each signup page and connect each one to its own calendar or to any calendar. So uh, I was able to go in and set things up for each show so that the show guests could actually, you know, hop on and, and pick a date that works for them, which means that I don't have to do a whole lot of back and forth. They just pick the date. And then if none of them work, then they can email me and say, look, I can't do it on Tuesdays at 1130 a.m. Mountain Time. And then I say, OK, well, then what about these other days and times? So I've been super happy with that. And I've been working on getting the guests onboarded. 
And uh, this week, I'm really going to be focusing on automating a lot of the stuff around sponsors. So I'm, I'm just looking forward to getting all of that stuff together and making sure that it all works. And then the other one, and this is something that I'm looking forward to trying, but I haven't tried yet, is Freshdesk. And it's just a help desk platform. I'm probably going to have one or two people that already do work for me helping me with some of the stuff in there. And then I'm hooking that up to an email address that people can send requests to. And that way my inbox doesn't get completely full. And it also means that uh, I can have other people solve the more routine problems and then I can focus on, hey, the website's down or this particular thing isn't working. And I'm really looking forward to that. So hoping that that'll take stuff off of my plate. So yeah, so still doing the automation thing and still working on a lot of that. I know we talked about that a few weeks ago, but anyway, that's that's kind of where I'm at there and that, that's why I have those picks. And I don't think we have anything else to announce, so we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.